Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue in downtown Milwaukee, this is Wisconsin's Morning News. Here's your host, Vince Vetrano. 611 on News Radio 620 WTMJ this Thursday morning. You may have heard you get a tax break if you drive an electric car. This sucker's electrical, but I need a nuclear reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity I need. Well, not everyone gets to claim that EV tax credit. Here's ABC's Daria Albinger with today's tax tip. The tax break for that Tesla. I'm Daria Albinger with today's tax tip. So you rolled off the lot in a shiny new electric vehicle in 2022, and you're wondering about that $7,500 tax credit the salesman mentioned. ABC News business correspondent Alexis Christophoros says... Act fast because a big rule change is coming in March. The pending rules will tie that $7,500 credit to whether an electric vehicle's battery meets a critical mineral and a battery component requirement. As for who qualifies for the credit? Married couples do not qualify for the new EV tax credit if their modified adjusted gross income on a joint tax return exceeds $300,000. The limit is $150,000 for single filers. That's a lot of information to keep track of. So, to see if your vehicle qualifies, you can enter your VIN number on the Department of Energy website, energy.gov. And to see if you qualify, you can find more information at irs.gov. With today's tax tip, Daria Albinger, ABC News. Tax tips are brought to you by the Neal Group. For less stress with the IRS, visit neilgroup.net. That's N-E-A-L group.net for a free consultation. Time for an update from the Gruber Law Office's One Call, That's All Sports Desk. Here's Brandon Snide. The regular season is quickly coming to an end as the Milwaukee Bucks entered Wednesday night with a two-and-a-half game lead in the East, and they were looking to add to it while visiting the Indiana Pacers. He wants that shot, spins into a defender, tried to feed it inside, came right back to him. It has been that kind of night for Holiday as he gets it to drop. He's got a career-high 42 with still two and a half to play here in the third. Dave Kane on the call right here on WTMJ. Drew Holiday with the bucket there, and he would have himself quite the night, dropping a career-high 51 points on his way to the victory. However, the game would kind of stay close throughout the fourth quarter until a Bucks run with about six minutes left in the quarter until Grayson Allen put former Buck Jordan Wara on a poster. Allen's going the other way. Dribble drive to the rack and he sends it down with a ferocious one-hand slam. Get out of here. Oh, baby, he takes some chest bumps on that sideline. Are we seeing the highlights tonight or what? That poster would send the Bucks back up double digits, one twenty-seven to one twenty, or excuse me, one twenty-seven to one sixteen to be exact, and they would cruise the rest of the way, outpacing Indiana for a final of one forty-nine to one thirty-six. Giannis, who also had a monster game himself of thirty-eight points, seventeen boards, and twelve assists, and he spoke after the game on his buddy Drew Holiday in the night that he had. He was unbelievable today. Um, we, we needed that from him. You know, they were playing really good. They were playing fast. They scored 130 points. Uh, and we needed every point from the 50 point he had today. Uh, he was unbelievable. He was moving the ball. He was aggressive. He was rebounding the ball. He was guarding. He was, he was unbelievable. Not only a historic night for Drew Holiday, but also for the Bucks who become the first team to have a 50-point score and a 35-point triple-double by two different players in the same game. Head coach 
Mike Budenholzer speaking after the game, speaking of those two guys that just made history, knows the connection between Giannis and Drew is quite special. You know, there's a couple examples to me where Drew's finding him right in the honey spot and um, Giannis finishing, and, you know, those two guys have a connection, and um, the more guys we can get involved in that, the more diversified we can be. Um, but when we need those two guys, um, you know, they can either make the pass or, or score and just make us tough to guard, hopefully. With the win, the Bucks improved their lead for the top spot in the East to three games over the Boston Celtics a team in which the Bucks will face off tonight at Pfizer Forum. That magic number for Milwaukee to clinch that number one seed is now at four. Tip-off for Bucks and Celtics is set for 6.30. You can catch full coverage right here on WTMJ beginning at 6. And finally, the wait is over, baseball fans. Opening day is once again upon us. The Brewers begin their regular season down in Chicago today to take on the Cubs. Corbin Burns is slated to get the start for the crew and he is quite eager to get rolling and do his best to lead this team heading into the new year. Yeah, you might want to go out there and set the tone for the year and you know, for, for the rest of the guys that are going to be following up in the rotation. So um, it's definitely exciting, definitely an honor. Um, you know, love, love going out there and, and trying, to, trying to go as deep as I can in games and, and set the tone for these guys. So um, yeah, that's the, the plan for opening day. First pitch for the Brewers and Cubs is all set for 120. Weather looks like it should be good to go. A little chilly. But you can listen to the full coverage right here on WTMJ, beginning at 1245. Your five-day forecast and an update on the roads next on Wisconsin's Morning News. Today, the season opener for your Milwaukee Brewers. The crew opening up against the Cubs at Wrigley Field in Chicago. 121st pitch, 1245 is the broadcast time for the call of the game right here on WTMJ. We'd be better off listening to adhesive tape. Now, that's not true, Bob. You guys do a great job. Brewers come home next week with the home opener on Monday afternoon. There is no off-season for the Brewers Community Foundation. They do great things in the community all year long. Executive Director of the Foundation, Cecilia Gore, is with us live this morning with ways that fans benefit from the foundation and how we can help the mission. Good morning, Cecilia. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great. As I mentioned, you know, foundation year-round operation, but I'm sure things get a lot more exciting for you and everybody involved when we're finally playing baseball again like today. It really does. I can't believe how quickly the season has started again, but here we are and we're ready to roll. So let me start with this because you and I talk often. You know, the foundation was launched with a sizable contribution from our principal owner, Mark Atanasio, years ago and is buoyed every year by players who contribute either financially or with their time in helping your initiatives. I know that's really important for you. Really important. I was in spring training this past February and March and I met with every player and left with nearly 100% giving from all of our players. They really respect the community and understand that we want to be a part of the fabric of this community, so we all roll up our sleeves and give either our time or our money. Well, and what I love about what you just said is you talk with the players about things that not only are important to the brewers, but also to them as individuals so that they're really invested in that giving. Yeah, you know, everyone lives their life. They understand the challenges that people face. Many people face their own challenges. Um, a lot of all those guys play youth baseball, so they understand that. And the foundation focuses on health, education, recreation, and basic needs. So there are opportunities to support many things that resonate with all of us. 
We're talking with Cecilia Gore, Executive Director of the Brewers Community Foundation. So I know Habitat for Humanity, that's a champion cause for your organization. Youth sports, you mentioned, and some of the health initiatives. Uh, how are fans here in Wisconsin feeling the impact of what you do? Well, you know, we've been around for a while now, and I feel like we really made a an impact. We support about 200 nonprofits annually. So as you mentioned, Habitat, Youth Baseball, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Literacy Programs, Arts and Culture, we just have a list. And I would suspect that if anyone looked at our organizations that we fund, they would find something that resonated with them. So, Cecilia, also, you know, regardless of one's personal philanthropy, there's also something in it for the fans when they do things like the 50-50 raffle at the games. I was yeah. reading, you know, Wonky Journal Sentinel had a nice write-up on a couple who was able to fund in vitro fertilization and build their family because of the $18,000 purse that they won in a right. 50-50. Did you look at that kid's face? You know, <laughs> right. All I can say is, we have a baby! <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing 50-50 raffle for a while, and many, many people go home with 50% of the day's proceeds, and that was probably our most memorable story. But every time a fan wins, somebody has an opportunity to do something great for their home or, you know, send their kid to school or make an important purchase, so... I really love the uh, 50-50 raffle, and we keep 50% of the proceeds to support those nonprofits that we identified earlier. Well, we certainly thank you and the Brewers Community Foundation for the players, the other members of your organization, and, of course, the ownership group as well for, for everything you've done so far. And I know the bright future is ahead. Happy opening day to you, Cecilia. Well, and let me just quickly say thank you. You've been with me in this all along. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Look at that. It's a love fest here on, on Wisconsin's Morning News. We're all happy it's opening day. Thanks, Cecilia. We'll talk again soon. All right. Take care. And look forward to all the things the Community Foundation is able to do here in the coming season. Again, Brewers opening day today on the road at Wrigley Field. 121st pitch, 1245 is the broadcast time here on WTMJ. Bullseye! Cheating will make you 6.41 on Wisconsin's Morning News. You've heard this next piece of sound before, several months ago, on this program. Do you recall what this was about? This was about fish. More specifically, about fishing. More specifically, competitive fishing. We got weights and fish! Get the f- <laughs> out of here! Get the f- <laughs> out of here! We got, we got wasted fish! We got uh, wasted fish! <laughs> Two guys last fall who stuffed lead weights and fish fillets into their catch in an effort to win a walleye tournament on Lake Erie. They did win until organizers cut the fish open and started pulling out these lead weights, found Jacob Runyon and Chase Kaminsky were big, fat cheaters. Everybody listen to me right now. Jake, I want you to leave. I don't want anybody to touch these guys. I want you to leave. Well, not quite jail, but they're in a lot of trouble. They were criminally charged and now convicted. 
Runyon and Kaminsky were charged with a slew of crimes since they would have won nearly $30,000 in the tournament. So for anybody who's like, ah, what big deal? Guys cheated at fishing. Okay. Well, thirty k was on the line. I mean, I don't know what the yeah, total person was. That was just for first place. And you're talking it. about like spot. Like if you win, you get more money through your sponsorship too. There, right? So they're basically perpetrating a fraud. So Runyon and Kaminsky charged with a whole bunch of stuff. Associated Press reporting now they did plead guilty to unlawful ownership of wild animals and agreed to a three year suspension of the Kaminsky. Also agreed to give up his hundred thousand dollar bass boat. For that deal, charges of attempted grand theft and possessing criminal tools were dropped. So grand theft, that's where you get the, you know, the prize the money, money right? right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of bigger than the fishing aspect of it. The money is a, a huge deal. And like Brandon said, if you get sponsors, I mean, you're, you are, can already afford a $100,000 boat. Well, I, that boat might not even be, that might be through the sponsors yeah. too. A lot of that is how it happens, which a $100,000 boat. Ooh, that's a nice boat. Well, and these guys were accused of doing this in other spots as well. Nothing ever stuck. Like, they couldn't prove it. It was too late. I don't know what finally motivated somebody to... Because guys were looking at, at the size, you know, the, the length. Mm-hmm. They're posing for pictures and everything with their walleye. And they're looking at the size of the fish. And they're like, how did that fish weigh? Because how they determined it is by weight. How did those fish weigh that much? Yeah. Well, and it, it was like a lot more than the, the second place one, too. <laughs> yeah, so you right? have to think, well, did these guys just get lucky? They get lucky a lot. A lot of a lakes. Lot. Yeah, they they're really good at this. So they cut the fish open, and they start pulling lead weights out and frozen fish fillets. <laughs> Jail, no. Prosecutors recommending six months probation. We got weights and fish. Get the f*** out of here. Get the f*** out of here. on Wisconsin's Morning News this Thursday morning. This week, families in Nashville planning funerals for three children and three adults who were killed in that school shooting Monday. Nashville has had its worst today. Our heart is broken. Our city united as we mourn together. And as Nashville Mayor John Cooper at a vigil for the victims and community Wednesday evening, in many ways another school shooting, sadly a familiar tale here in America, but in some ways this particular tragedy unique as well. ABC News crime and terrorism analyst Brad Garrett is with us from Washington this morning. Brad, unique in several ways by my observation, starting with the shooter in this case who does not fit the traditional profile of mass shooters that that we've talked about over these years. True. I mean, a, a female, for starters. Yes, we've had other female mass shooters, but the number is really low. Uh, you have someone who uh, had a career, apparently. She had gone to a design and modeling the school, was highly thought of there, motivated, overachiever. Uh, neighbors thought she was friendly. Uh, I've not heard anything about dark or violent posts online that, you know, that may pop up and that may not. But the point being, Tim, she looked looked like she was, could run under the radar where so many mass shooters just have to talk and send messages and so forth. Um, She quietly, apparently uh, gathered seven firearms she bought legally. She kept them in the house where she lived with her parents. They claimed they didn't know that they were there. Um, 
And she sends this message on Instagram to a friend that I don't think she's had regular contact with for years um, about what she's going to go do. Literally, as she's sitting in the parking lot. So there's really no time for the police to deal with that. Um, And goes in and commits the shooting. Uh, So I guess what that tells me is, could we have even gotten in front of her? Was there information? Maybe, maybe not. So uh, you and I have had these conversations where there were a number of red flags with people. Well, there probably were with her, but did anybody know about them? I guess is the real question. You know, Brett, on the preparation side of things, it, it seemed like this school, as far as like the building goes, was doing what it could. It had locked doors. It, you know, outside of having an armed officer stationed at the door, it doesn't seem like there were a lot of like loose ends, I guess you could say. So, so question wise, I guess I'm just wondering if you're advising, like, where does a school go from here? Is it just simply have armed officers? Well, maybe. I mean, the reality is, unless you want to turn a school into looking like a prison, with massive doors, bulletproof glass, bars on the window, uh, multiple, you know, there's sort of a dead space between getting in the place uh, and from the outside. First of all, it would be cost prohibitive. But it, also, do you want seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds living, going to school in that environment? Of course not. So there's that issue. Uh, and the second is, Mass shooters are so good at sort of planning, and she is included in the statement, that they'll just take their time and figure out where their vulnerabilities are to get into a location if, in fact, they're determined to go to that location. So uh, all I'm suggesting is you can only do so much here, um, and we just have to get better in talking to each other and the police having better or more intelligence about people they need to be checking up on. Maybe it's the mental health people that would check up on them, but we just are not keeping, we're not doing a good enough job of that, which has all sorts of thorny issues and time and who's available to do it. But that's the key here, because the reality is we're not going to change our gun laws. They're not going to restrict weapons. I mean, Tennessee's even talking about allowing open carriers of AR-15s now. That's a bill they're about to pass, or talk about passing. So, it, we're just not going to do anything about that. So we've got to come up with alternative ways to perhaps stop some of these shooters. ABC News crime and terrorism analyst Brad Garrett with us today. Brad, thank you for your perspective, as always. You're welcome. Take care.